what are you going to tell us, tough guy? I said, my usual. Zero. Nothing. Ladies and gents, Pop Culture Podcast. How you all doing? Hope everything's going well. Everything's going well here. I oh, bloody I think I've got COVID again. I'm gonna I'm gonna lock that in. If I was a betting man, that's what I think I have. I remember the old days when you could just have a common cold and you know no one really read too far into it. But these days you've got to uh, you've got to claim COVID because it sounds more serious. I feel as though you you get a little more sympathy for telling people you have COVID. Um, so ladies, I'd like to apologise in advance if my voice excites you today. I can feel it's husky. Fellas, if you're in the car with your lady, I'd like to apologise to you as well. Obviously, the temptation would be real. <clears throat> you might not have COVID, and uh, as a result, sound as sound as nice as, as what I'm coming through to right now. But uh, hey, your time may come. Your time may come. I went down to Melbourne last night. I don't know that I should have. I went to a room. I was feeling slightly off. When I first got COVID, I went to this same room. It was it was ironic. It was about maybe three months ago now. And uh, yeah, last or yesterday morning, I woke up. You know when you wake up and you can just tell you're slightly off. I was slightly off. I could just tell something wasn't a hundred percent right. It was, uh, you know, my my voice was r- really raspy. My throat was a little sore. My, uh, I'm not sure, but I'm the kind of guy I try and I try and milk it for for all it's worth as well. Like if I if I even feel mildly sick, I'm going to try and lap it up as much as I can, just because um, I think it's a beautiful way to get attention. I think it's a beautiful way to, to, you know, just really establish that caring part of your relationship where, you know, your wife's got to go above and beyond to look after you because of what it is that you're going through. It's funny, we're getting over it quickly though, aren't we? I remember, um, yeah, a few months ago, if you had COVID, it was the most serious thing in the world. Last night, I'm pretty sure three of us at the comedy room had COVID. No one cared anymore. Masks have disappeared. It's much better. It's so much nicer seeing people's faces. Most people's faces, anyway. Do you know there's always there's always one person who probably looks a little bit better with a mask on. Did you notice that? It was incredible through lockdowns, just noticing how many people you'd walk past and you go, "Hey, they're attractive." And then you see them go get a drink, and you go, "Oh, <laughs> what happened there? Put your mask back on." I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I'm one of those people. I reckon I, I walk along with a strut, just in the eyes. Just a little look to say, hey, check this out, and then I take the uh, the bottom of the mask off, and I've got to stop doing that. Self-deprecating is a, a funny thing. I do that as well. Last night I did that. I, I get up on stage, and, and okay, it's safe to say last night, I think the only thing you can call it was a bomb. I'm pretty sure. I felt lonely up there. It's one of the, lo- I reckon bombing on stage at comedy is one of the loneliest things. Not only for yourself when you're up on stage because you're embarrassed, but when you get off stage as well, no one wants to make eye contact with you. There's always a couple of people who say, hey, good job, man. You know, they're just lying to your face. That's the world, though. People always say it would be the most painful way to, uh, uh, I personally think it's the most difficult uh, experience of failure. If you If you get up on stage as a comedian and you're trying to say the jokes that you thought were funny, and you think they're funny and everyone's looking at you like, mate, this guy's a, a Muppet. It's a pretty lonely place to be. And that's exactly what happened last night. It was a, uh, I don't know. As soon as I started, I, I was doing the wrong jokes for the wrong room is the is the truth. I went to a room, which it's got a bit of a reputation for being quite, quite left, which is fine. But if you're going to do a joke about uh, vaccine mandates to a, a little lefty room like that, you've got to expect what's coming. And I got to... <clears throat> I got to one part of my joke and you, you, you could just feel the energy had disappeared from the room. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I just drove an hour and a half to beat this place. I can't believe I've, uh, I've still got three minutes left of my set. The worst part is when you start with your best joke. Like if you think you've started with your absolute best joke, and then no one laughs. You go, oh, gee, I can't believe. All right, if they didn't like that one, they're not going to like the rest of it. But that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I got off stage one uh, last night. My mate goes to me, dude, you got to stop self-deprecating. And I was like, oh, isn't it funny? He's like, no, I feel sorry for you. I said, all right, note taken. I'm going uh, to make sure there's no more self-deprecation because uh, I thought that was funny. I thought everything I was saying on stage was, was going to make you laugh, but... Apparently, it just looked like, uh, I think people were just feeling sorry for me, going, well, he's got low self-esteem, doesn't he? I didn't. I just, uh, I was trying to acknowledge the joke in there. Because that's the thing. You can bomb in comedy. Like, you can you can absolutely bomb. But if you can acknowledge it the right way that you're bombing, just, just let the audience know, hey, look, I know what's going on here. I understand. I understand. We're all in this together, all right? But, you're, I mean, you're not in it with me. I'm here by myself. But I would just like you to know that I know what's taking place right now. But if you do that the wrong way, it just gets awkward. I feel like the most difficult situation to be in is is when you acknowledge the fact you're bombing and the audience still gives you nothing. If you go, oh, I drove an hour and a half to be here, and they still go, yeah, like that was a waste of all of our time. You go, oh, <laughs> all right. This is, this is very uncomfortable. But that's comedy for you. I mean, it's weird as well. The open mic comedy scene last Tuesday, uh, last Thursday, sorry, I went to a comedy room in Melbourne. It was a, uh, It was at a pub. It was at a wake. There's certain, there's certain images you get in your mind when you decide to take on a new venture. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, when I decided to take on stand-up comedy as a new challenge, I, I, there was never a point in my mind where I thought, all right, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to perform at a wake one day and try and make these people who have just lost someone who are in, incredibly valuable to them laugh. And they were aggressive as well. It was like, a, I'm not sure if it was an Irish. There was quite a, there was quite a mix of, of people there. There was a, a couple of Islander boys, and, and they were they were very drunk. I knew they were drunk because a, a couple of them were getting very competitive on like this uh, simulation 10-pin bowling game. And honestly, I thought there was a fight about to break out. I knew emotions were running high based on the fact that these people were, uh, you know, they'd all they'd all lost someone very very important to them. And uh, <clears throat> if there's one audience, it's hard to make laugh. It's a it's an audience of people who have who have just lost their closest friend. <laughs> So uh, yeah, that was a that was a lonely night. That was a little bit of a lonely night. But that's uh, that's just what you do. There was an Irish guy there last week. Look at this. There's an Irish guy there last week, and on the bar they had uh, they were selling they were selling all these different sunglasses. And I thought, oh, that's that's cool. Like I I thought maybe I will get a pair of sunglasses for for the podcast, you know, because it it looks pretty cool when you are uh, when you it kickstart a new podcast and you're wearing these bright green glasses. But they were four bucks each, which is fine. I mean, like you wouldn't pay much more than four bucks for these. And I didn't have any. I didn't have any money on me. I didn't have. They didn't have card. Or they didn't accept card, and I had no coins. And this this Irish guy came up to me and he goes, "Do you want those fucking sunglasses?" And I said, "I beg your pardon." He goes, "Do you want the fucking sunglasses?" I said, "Oh, not really." He goes, "Too bad. I've just bought them for you. Now put them on." And I was like, "Really? What? Put them on? I don't want to wear them. It's quite dark in here." He's like, "I haven't just bought them for you not to wear." I said, "I've told you I didn't want them." He goes, "That's not my problem." It's very strange. The, the conversation was because uh, this guy had been there the week before or a couple of weeks before. I think he might just be a regular or one of the locals down there at uh, at the Footscray Hotel. And uh, it was weird. I said to him, I said, oh, thank you. He goes, don't thank me. I didn't do it for you. I said, oh, what, what did you do it for? You just did it to support 
the people of the virus. I did. I didn't do it for anybody. I did it for nobody. Not even myself. I go. This is just a ridiculous conversation. Pub conversations are a frustrating one because after a certain amount of drinks, the conversation loses all relevance. I remember. Uh, I, I remember because it was last. This was last Thursday as well. So I went from that Footscray gig and I went to another gig in Ripon Lee. And there was a guy there. There was a. There was a one man audience. It was a one man audience by the time I got on, and he was. Like the only explanation for what this guy was was he was he was absolutely he was off his tits to be fair like he I'd never seen a more drunk man in my entire life he was you know he he'd had a lot to drink I remember there was a Jewish guy that got up on stage and he yelled out Hitler was misunderstood I thought well that's a that's a real tough pl- place to start a gig isn't it <laughs> like if you're going to be yelling that out in the first thirty seconds of this guy's gig I mean uh, historically Jewish people aren't overly overly happy with with that take on Hitler. You know, because a lot of people think they understood him pretty well, and and what he did was was heavily frowned upon. And I think that's the accurate interpretation of, of what he's done. But it's interesting. A- alcohol it gives you the confidence to say things like that in public. Where if you if you're just sober, that's why I don't really like having those big, deep, and meaningfuls with people who are just wasted. Do you know those ones? Like you you'll see a person that you haven't seen for a couple of years, and for whatever reason, you the conversation might be a little like a little bit stolt. Is it stolted? Halted? Might be a little bit. Um, Jolted, I think is the word that I'm looking for. And then you get a couple of drinks in, all of a sudden you're cuddling, uh, they're, they're rubbing your head, they're getting you in a headlock and, you know, telling you about the, the, the long lost feelings they've had for you. They never had the confidence until now to tell you how, how they feel about you. And I go, I don't know, it's just not really my thing. And that's the open mic comedy scene for you. That's the, that's the thing. It's like, it's the only way that you can get better. You have to do these rooms. But it's a really strange experience because like you go into a room like this and people just assume, like an open, be honest, have you ever been to an open mic room of any sort, whether it's music, whether it's comedy, whether it's poetry, what, what, like what other kind of open mic rooms do they do? But you don't go there thinking this is going to be unreal. Like I can't wait to see the depth of talent in this place. You go there thinking this is going to be a laugh not only because of the fact that, um, yeah, the, the problem with that statement is it's, it's not even a laugh because the jokes are funny. It's a laugh because it's an embarrassment. You can't believe that people got up on stage. We're like the Australian Idol. You know when you see an Australian Idol kid get up, they're 15 years old and their mum's told them their whole life that they're very talented. Then they get up on stage in front of Australia and they start singing and, and the keys are a little bit off or a lot off. You go, okay, I'm not sure where you're where your confidence came from, but there's there's clearly something that's been lost. There's something that's been missed. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that at the, the Melbourne comedy scene. That's what gave me the confidence to do it. I saw people like me, the open mic comedy scene, just get up and, and do five minutes of jokes and they didn't get any laughs. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. That's doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, it's amazing watching people just uh, because there's no there's no comedian who hasn't had the experience of of having to bomb. Like that's one thing. Whenever I come home and I've bombed, I just go on Google stories about like good comedians who have actually bombed because it's just so comforting. <laughs> it's so nice to know that um, <clears throat> it's possible to be good. Anyway, we went and saw a good comedian the other day. We went and saw the great man Tim Dillon here in Melbourne. Tim Dillon, if you haven't checked out his podcast, he's a, he's a funny guy. He's a, I don't know how you explain him. He's a, he's a really confusing guy to get your head around. He looks like Alex Jones as a younger man. He's got the passion of Alex Jones, but he's gay, which is a real spanner in the work. You don't, you don't expect that. I remember the first time I heard him say it, I thought, oh, okay, he's obviously made a mistake there. He's, 
clearly doesn't understand what the meaning of gay is. But uh, upon further research, I found out he is. He did a great. He did a great set. He was unreal. We went down to the Palais there. He was at last time I was at the Palais. We went and saw Bob Dylan, who's who's perhaps my ultimate hero. Maybe not my ultimate hero, but he's up there. And uh, I had I had weird memories going back to the Palais because Bob Dylan was. Like notoriously, his his gigs are a little bit rubbish. I think he's man, he's seventy eight years old, so you got to cut him some slack. But I think all through his career, all through his career, he's had a reputation for not necessarily giving the crowd what they want. So he'll go to a gig and like, he was singing Mister Tambourine Man, which is one of his old classic songs. And it was honestly, we we're about two thirds of the way through the song, and I started listening to the lyrics and I realized what the song was. It was one of those ones where you've been singing it for so long that. Uh, you just have to change it because otherwise you're going to jump off the stage and just start smashing the front row of the audience with your guitar because you're just so upset about how long it's been that you've had to be doing this this particular routine for. And <clears throat> yeah, so I went there with I don't know, I don't know. It just it, it's tainted my view of of the Palais. I thought, okay, maybe it's the maybe it's the venue. Maybe it was just too big, and for what Dylan was doing, it just it just wasn't going to work. But man, he was a I tell you, Dylan, he, he corrected the he corrected the palais what do you call it? I don't know what I'm going on about. I'm not sure. Anyway, I, what I'm trying to say is the palais back in my good books are uh, good books again. Hey, going to I'm I've booked the tickets to, to go over to the United States in about what are we now? Just over a month. Me, me and Jessie we're jet setting, we're going up to Cairns to, to visit her mum in a you know, in about a, three weeks. Which it's always interesting going to visit your in-laws, isn't it? Because, uh, like, I love my mother-in-law, but there's there's just other things that are fun to do. I'm excited to go to Cairns and see crocodiles, um, uh, but the crocodile that we're staying with, he's <laughs> that's not even true. She's lovely. I hope she doesn't listen to this. If you do, Leanne, you're a beautiful woman. I was just joking. I was trying to be funny. I've just called you a crocodile. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're far more agile. You're like an alligator. Um yeah, so we're going to go up there and stay with her, which which should be a little bit of fun. I'm nervous. I'm going to be honest. The the flight to Kansas, that's all right. Like, what what's that going to be? I think that's about four hours from Victoria. But then the the flight to so we're going to stay in Oregon, which is where Jesse's brother lives. lives in a little country town, or a big country town called Medford, in Oregon. And uh, we're going to fly into San Francisco. We're there for I think we're there for maybe fourteen hours. The flight over is 14 hours. I'm not 100% sure how I feel about taking my little man on a plane for 14 hours. He's an energetic kid. He's a really energetic kid. I mean, we stay inside for 15 minutes sometimes, and I can see him starting to get a little bit tense, a little bit frustrated. He's, he's like, all right, we, we've got to get outside. So, I mean, it's going to be an adventure, <clears throat> to say the least. And I haven't been the nicest person when it comes to the judgment I've had around families traveling with kids in the past. I just, I, I mean, I've just, I've sent out like little special prayers to the families of the children that I abused on planes and hope they forgive me and hope karma, you know, doesn't cost me and, and we're just the center of attention on the plane for all the wrong reasons. So uh, I've been doing some Google research about how we can make this flight more enjoyable, but I'm going to be completely honest. I, I feel as though there's still, I'm not sure, there's a few asterisks that we need to, uh, that we're going to try and need to navigate. What do you, I don't even know if he has his own seat. But, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. COVID. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the last few years, I've, I've, I'm, yeah, I, here's my pet hates. I'll go into a cafe, I'll hear a dog barking, I'll hear a, chi- a, a, a kid crying, I'll, uh, I'll have a wonky table. 
someone will be on their, their laptop and the, the keys are annoying me. I'm a little bit sensitive to news and I feel like it's all about to come back and, and bite me a little bit. But if you're on that flight, uh, that Qantas flight in just a few weeks to the United States, I would change it if I was you because uh, the truth be told, I'm trying my best to change it so Jesse can go over with my little mate and I can just go over on a separate, separate flight and enjoy it. Because you want to enjoy the flight, don't you? You want to get on there and be able to watch a movie and switch off and look out the window and you know maybe have a bit of a chat to a couple of people around you. Not for too long though because... 14 hours of conversations, is, is that's a little bit too much. But you can't do that with a kid, I don't think, because your challenge is, is going to be, all right, well, how do we entertain this kid? There's only so much blippy that he can watch. Anyway, I'll keep you posted on that. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do a podcast, just even though you guys might not care about. This is the thing with kids. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to update you on uh, how these flights go. You don't really care about the behavior of my kid on that flight, do you? Unless it's just a disaster. Unless, he's, unless his behavior is absolutely disastrous. Unless we're abused. There's been too many flights where I've been the center of attention. One of them was, uh, one of them was when we were coming home from our, our honeymoon. We'd been to Bali for a couple of weeks. And I remember, uh, I remember the, the day before we left, we had like a, no, it was the morning before we left, we had this massive sushi dish. There was, a, there was like a really nice uh, sushi place that I'd been promised was amazing but the thing is we, we were there with a couple of friends who had met me, me jesse catherine shaney we we're all eating this sushi and uh they all seemed to dodge it but i remember just as we were about to get on the plane because you're not supposed to eat ice in bali unless it's sort of purified water because a lot of the uh, a lot of the water over there has bugs in it and us western stomachs just don't really know how to handle it very well you know where where the bitches of, of balinese water is is what they say <coughs> excuse me and I remember we got to the airport and I, I ordered a pineapple juice, which was just a coincidence. It was nothing to do with the, the first couple of weeks of marriage. There was none of that going on. It was just a, I've always enjoyed pineapple juice, even before I, I knew some of the benefits that, that came with it. The so-called benefits. I'm not sure if that's even true. If you don't understand what I mean, maybe Google it, like the benefits of pineapple juice. But I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. If there's kids in your car, they'll, they'll already know. I mean, the amount of things that you learn in grade four is is incredible. Even if they're at a Christian school, I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to be news to them. They'll understand what I'm talking about. And why are you listening to this podcast with them in the car, to be honest? Like, I think, I don't want to question your parenting this early on in this particular podcast, but I, I think some situations force you uh, to ask questions of yourself. And, and if you've got this on around your kids, uh, you know, I don't want to say I'm disappointed in you, but there's not really a lot of other ways that I can explain my emotion towards you right now. But nonetheless, I, I mean, I, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm glad you're, you're here listening. But come on. <laughs> I'm not sure. I shouldn't be giving parenting advice. But anyway, we got on the flight, and I had had this pineapple juice, and it had a couple of cubes of ice in it. And, uh, you know, I smashed it pretty quickly because it was always humid in Bali. And, and when you drink there, you're not just having, like, a little sip. You're gonna, you, like, you have to smash it because, I mean, I'm the kind of guy that I, I get a little bit excited. I get a little bit... Uh, uh, preoccupied with the adventures that we we're on so the idea of, of maintaining hydration wasn't at the forefront of my mind <clears throat> and uh and, and so this particular drink came out i smashed it we got on the flight the flight no joke we were on the runway the flight like the jet engine started revving up and i just started spewing it was it was intense like the noise the volume of the spew um, uh, the looks of disappointment and disgust on the people's faces around me. And it just happened the whole way to Darwin. We were supposed to stop off in Darwin, which I'm not 100% sure. I want to say it's maybe like maybe like a three-hour flight from Darwin to Bali or, or vice versa. 
So it's a three-hour flight from Bali to Darwin. We were supposed to be in Bar- uh, in Darwin for, I think it was maybe maybe three hours. But I was so sick that, uh, well, here he was the embarrassing thing. Like we had to get these quarantine people to come on the plane and do all these tests on me and no one was allowed off the plane because just in case I had some form of, you know, a deadly disease that they didn't want to bring back into Australia. It was an embarrassing thing, you know? So that was, um, but it's, it, I think it's just any form of transport. Like as a kid, I used to always get airsick on the uh, on the planes. I'd always jump on and I'd be vomiting. Um, the flight attendants would be looking at me like, whoa, this is, this is incredible. Like how does such a small kid have so much sick inside his stomach? And then, you know, I went on the boat to the Great Barrier Reef and I, I, we were 15 minutes into a, like a three-hour trip. We took a small boat for whatever reason and I honestly feel queasy just talking about it right now. We, we got out to the Great Barrier Reef and uh, I was just so excited to jump in the water. But the lady running the show was like, man, you're so sick that I can't, I can't let you going to the water to make yourself feel better. You're just going to have to sit on the boat for the rest of the day. I was like, no, no, but I think I think it's me sitting on the boat that's actually made me feel sick. She's like, well, uh, if that's the case, you're, you know, you're, you're very unlucky because that's exactly what you're going to be doing for the next the next five hours. And I just I remember telling Jesse, I was like, baby, just order me a helicopter. Like, drop me off at the closest island, get me a helicopter. I was dead serious as well. My brother-in-law was there, he was pissing himself, laughing. Jesse was laughing. I was vomiting. Um... We paid about 250 bucks for that trip, and I just laid on the boat all day just feeling so incredibly sick. So uh, <clears throat> what I'm saying is uh, I'm really hoping this isn't going to be another experience of, of us just being at the at the center of attention of the, uh, of the rest of the people on the plane. And there's so many different opinions on what it is that we should actually do when we're on the flight. Have you guys noticed that? Like if you've got kids... You'll completely understand the fact that there's so there's so much different parenting advice out there. Everyone wants to tell you the the way you should be parenting. Some people say no, no, you've got to expose them to yeah. Like example, I don't want my kid to have a heap of sugar. We went down to Gippsland the other day, my dad's fifty eighth birthday, and they were just giving him lollies, and it was doing my head in because I was like, all right, he doesn't need lollies right now. He's he's a year and a half old. He doesn't even really know what they are. Fruit's exciting for him. Uh, uh, and, and he was getting a whole heap of musk lollies. And I was like, all right, well, I need to calm down. And they go, no, it's good for him because if you don't give him lollies now, then what's going to happen is he's going to grow up and he'll be addicted to cocaine because he's repressed his emotions for so long uh, that he's got no other options but to be addicted to cocaine. I thought, well, that's not ideal, so maybe I'll give him a musk stick. And then I came back here and we saw our friend who's a naturopath and she's like, yeah, you're, uh, uh, sorry, not a naturopath, uh, she's a chiropractor. And she's gone, yeah, look, nah, kids don't need to be exposed to any of this kind of stuff. And people say it all with so much confidence. Have you noticed that? Like there's there's so much confidence behind so much of, of what we believe. It's from things like, uh, I mean, not that kids should be lighting a fire, but lighting fires is one of those highly, highly toxic conversations. A lot of people aren't 100% sure um, whether or not they can trust the, the the people who they're camping with ability to light a fire. Like, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. What? How? How horrific! So the least I could do is just turn my head away. I could just turn my head away and, uh, you know, not do that into the microphone. So next time that happens, I'll, I'll do that. But I don't know. It's a. I, I noticed this as well. Before Jesse had Charlie, like there were so many people that would speak to. Him. They're like, all right, what you've got to do, you've just got to try and get your sleep when he's sleeping. If you can sleep when they sleep, you'll be set. Like you'll be a new person. You'll feel so much better. And then another person will say with so much confidence, no, no, you need to sleep 
at night time and you just keep yourself awake throughout the day do the same with your baby and then you know eventually the baby will just fall asleep and it's just going to be a really beneficial uh, sort of contribution to your family life with this child you go I, I don't know who to listen to anymore I just wish people had a genuine like a genuine gauge of like I wish the tone of voice in most people matched the confidence that they have because some people like I've caught people doing this in the past where you know you'll speak to people who they sound as though they know a lot about a lot and then they'll start talking about something that you know about and you realize ah oh, you actually don't know much about this but you're speaking with like a certain level of confidence that makes it sound as though you know a lot about this and uh, it automatically just throws a spanner in the works of how much does this person really know And so I wish there was a gauge. I wish there was something that we could do just to allow us to just allow us to be able to weed out the uh, the bullcrap from from the truth. Like rather than just having people speak confidently about everything they believe, why can't we just uh, why can't their tone of voice change to match the deep down level of confidence that they have? Like if they if they're really lacking confidence in what they say, maybe it's just above a whisper. So the just above a whisper volume is symbolic of them saying, oh, "Okay, well, this is about how much confidence I have in what I'm saying." I don't actually know 100%, but I'm pretty sure that this is what I'm saying. And then you can turn it right up to 10. Like when you're 100% certain you know what you're talking about, you can come out, you do the American accent, you'd be like, look, ladies and gentlemen, I know exactly what I'm talking about here. The best way to put your child to sleep is after a McBurry. I'm not sure what a McBurry is. I got muddled up with a McMuffin and a McFlurry. If you're not from Australia, I don't even know if they have McFlurries overseas. Is that an Australian thing? I'm not too sure. I haven't had a McFlurry for years. I remember when they first came out, it was very exciting. It was like the stuffed crust pizza. That was a very exciting situation as well. Um, that was back in the day when I used to eat weed foods. Jessie was reminding me the other day. She goes, uh, she goes, look, when we go to America, can you not be an embarrassment like what you wear in Europe? I said, one sec, sweetie. Like, do you mind just elaborating a little bit on what it is that you're talking about there? Because that's a very... It's a very forward way to, to come out and explain your feelings about something. I'm not even sure what I did wrong in Europe, but the fact that you sound so disappointed in me suggests that, you know, whatever it was, wasn't great. She goes, well, <clears throat> Jesse, I promised I wouldn't do that. She said, uh, she said, well, I just remember going to places and being so excited about the fact that we're going to get to eat like genuine, beautiful European food. And I go through phases of getting a little bit OCD. I go, I go through phases of getting a little bit just to stuck on whatever idea that I have. And uh, one of those ideas at the time was I was, a, I was a vegan or I was a vegetarian. I'm like, all right, I don't care that we're in Bologna, the home of spaghetti bolognese. I'm not eating any spaghetti bolognese because I'm all about just health and wellness and, and rigidity. And uh, so we, got, we were sitting there at the table uh, in Bologna and Jesse and I were, were sitting there having a bit of a look through the menu and everything was just meat. I mean, we're in Bologna, the home of spaghetti bowl. And the, the waiter came out and he goes, oh, hey, ladies and gentlemen, what is it that I can get for you? And uh, I said, mate, I'm actually a vegetarian. He goes, it's fine. We've got options for vegetarian. He goes, you're vegan? I said, I'm vegan, yeah. He goes, that's fine. Um, he goes, okay, miss, you have, oh, I'll get you your spaghetti bolognese. Because it just goes without saying that at a place like that, you, uh, you know, you're going to have spaghetti bolognese. And then if you have a person like me who, I'm not sure what was going through my mind at the time. I was a vegan. This, the, the Italians don't really understand uh, veganism, I don't think. I well, I say that because he he said, "Yeah, oh, we got heaps of vegan options. Let me bring you a special." He brought out mushrooms on toast, and it was just covered in feta cheese. And I said, oh, "Is this vegan?" He goes, "Yes, it's a there's just some cheese on there as well." I go, "Well, 
I'm pretty sure the definition of vegan is is that it doesn't have anything dairy on there. He's like, ah, you're confused. This one's fine. This one's not proper. This one's just, uh, this is delicious. I said, but, like, the thing is, though, I, I don't think you can measure how legitimate a cuisine is based on whether it's delicious or not. Like, just because the steak is delicious doesn't make it vegetarian. And he goes, just eat it. It's fine. So Jessie was saying she was so disappointed in me because the whole way through Italy, I was going around and I was just looking at like Middle Eastern falafel venues and I was looking at Asian restaurants. I was eating fried rice. I'm not sure how much MSG I consumed when we were in Italy, but the truth is I, I think I would have just been better off eating spaghetti, spaghetti bolognese. And then we are in Positano. One of my friends told me, hey, go to Positano when you get over to, go, get over to Italy. Oh, that was another experience. Have you guys ever been to the Amalfi Coast? Dude, I was, I've never been so embarrassed in my life at the Amalfi Coast. We got on a bus from, I think it's Nice. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, was it Nice? <coughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, we had like a six-hour bus trip, and it was a long way. And to get to the Amalfi Coast, you've got to wind these, uh, these real tight corners. And I remember we were about 30 minutes into this six-hour bus trip, and I was like, I'm in so much trouble. Anyway, I said to the guy, I go, mate, just pull over. I'm going to walk. He's like, no, no, you've still got 15Ks till you get to the accommodation. I said, honestly, 15Ks is fine. I just I just want to get out of the car. So I got out of the car, and uh, he wasn't going to let me walk because the road was too dangerous, he thought. And I was just vomiting on the ground, and he was laughing. Everyone on the bus was laughing. Um, anyway, uh, long story short, we managed to get there. I was still alive. We, we got to the Amalfi Coast at the venue that we were staying at. Uh, woke up in the morning, and, yeah, it had been recommended. Positano, go down to... This family-run, uh, it's not a vegetarian shop, but it's just like a, a really, it's like the delicacies of the place. You go down there and you, you eat what's in season. They give you a five-course meal. It's very delicious. And I called and said, you have vegetarian? And they said, oh, are you kidding? And so we didn't get a chance to go there either because the lady, like, here's the thing. Like, so many Europeans just laugh at people like me, and so they should. What an idiot. Like, why would you go to Italy and go, actually, I'm vegetarian for this trip? I reckon that should be the one place where if you're going to go carnivore diet, that's the place you should do it. Because they've got so many good foods there. And Jessie's a foodie. She would get there and, man, all she wants to do, she just wants to eat like the little the little fancy sausages. She wants to have the little espressos. I'm on board with the espressos. It's just when we get to food, I start getting a little bit fussy. And so still, this is this is six years ago now that we were in, uh, in Positano. And still, I reckon once a week, she'll come out to me and she'll go, I can't believe you didn't eat that food in Positano. I go, sweetie. I just feel like for the sake of our marriage, we, we need to stop talking about this. And she's like, I'm just furious at you. I said, I understand that you're furious at me, but I just, I, you know, the mushroom toast, it was flavoursome. It was a flavoursome meal. And she said, I'm not sure why we're, why we're even still married, to be honest. And I said, well, that's hurtful because the truth is she's, she's got options if she wanted them. She's got plenty of options. She's a beautiful girl. Actually, when we were, uh, where did we go? We went to Greece. We went to Italy. France and Spain. We went to Spain, and uh, Jessie's got that that real Macedonian look going on. So we got to Spain, and everybody just assumed that she was a, a Spanish chick. And the amount of good-looking men that came up to her and said, "Hey, baby, you, you know, you want me to take you on a tour?" And Jessie goes, "Oh, that'd be beautiful. I'd love to go on a tour." I go, "Sweetie, he's flirting with you." She goes, "I, I know. I understand that." I go, "No, but he he thinks that like you, he might have a chance." And she goes, oh, "Maybe he does." I don't know why she spoke like that. But even in London, we eventually got to London. So this whole trip was before we got to to London, where we based ourselves for eighteen months. <clears throat> even when we got to London, there were Spanish people coming up to her, and uh, you know, just having a little bit of a flirt. So essentially, I tell you all that to say, I'm going to try and lift my game. I'm going to try and lift my game at this uh, at, at this particular trip.
I can't have my boy as he's starting to get more and more familiar and more and more understanding, uh, you know, about what's acceptable behaviour in a, a grown adult judging me. Because he started to do that a little bit lately. He's, he, the other day, he's, he's playing this new game, or it's a game for him. For me, it's just a, it's an embarrassing moment where I realise uh, <clears throat> I'm going to have to just not let this situation get ahead of me. He was sitting in the, in the lounge room the other day, and he had a cup, and he was banging it on the window, and I said, no. And he goes, yeah, no, no, no. And, the, and then he just starts doing it harder. And I go, mate, like, you've got to listen to me. And he's like, no. I go, so he's at that point now where he's starting to understand how to argue back. And I'm at that point now where, as a 35-year-old man, you've got to be very careful not to, what do you say? Not to make it a bigger issue than it is. Because if you start getting in a fight with a, a, an 18-month-old kid because you disagree with the behavior that he doesn't understand his ridiculous way to act, then it makes you silly. Like, the amount that a kid can get away with is is just incredible, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? Like, we were in the backyard the other day, and our back fence, perhaps like every fence everywhere else in the world, packs on directly to our neighbours. And our neighbour was out the back the other day, quite a, quite a low fence, and uh, he came he came over to the fence, and he's like, hey, guys, how you going? Hey, Charlie. And uh, Charlie just started going, bye. <laughs> bye. So there's certain things that you can do as a kid that, as a grown adult, yeah, you can no longer get away with anymore. And I, I just think just being able to say bye, like being able to shit your pants in front of people and not be embarrassed about it, like it's incredible. The, the, the comfort that a baby has to have its nappy change, regardless of, of how vulgar what's in that nappy has turned out to be, is, is mind-blowing. We can be down the street in a room full of new people. He'll shit himself. I'll take his nappies off, and he'll just start flicking his little willy in front of people like there's no shame. He'll get he'll get poo under his fingernails. He'll start wiping his face. He doesn't care. He'll start trying to grab it and throw it like a cheeky little monkey. Um, and for him, he's completely he's completely fine. But it's us as parents that uh, the judgment is is more heavily placed upon. And he's gone through that phase now of uh, of trying to hit other kids. I've started to just uh, I think it's just a phase that kids go through. And I was bagging my best mate a couple of weeks ago because because uh, Tommy, his boy, was was bashing Charlie, and I was like, "What a little muppet! My kid will never do that." And and now he does do that. He does it. Uh, he does it quite a lot to boys, girls, parents. He doesn't care. We were down at the park the other day, and uh, a kid was on the slide, wanting to go down, waiting his turn. Charlie just came up and whacked him in the back of the head. I said, "Mate, there's there's so many better ways." Um, you know, to try and navigate a situation like what you're in right now. Uh, I think if you're, you're looking for the best result, physical violence is, it's probably not the right approach. And he, he didn't really listen because, you, you know, you can't speak like that to a, an 18-month-old kid and expect them to listen, but, but that's, that's just what it is. Hey, um, I watched that movie, uh, the musical Hamilton this week. Dude, have you seen that? It is, uh, it is, so Jesse had been saying to me for the last three weeks, she goes, babe, we need you, uh, I need to get you on board. Have a, have a look at this Hamilton musical. I said, sweetie, I, I couldn't think of anything that's less enjoyable than watching a musical. She goes, look, trust me. If you haven't seen Hamilton, ladies and gentlemen, this is coming from a self-professed uh, musical hater. I don't, I don't enjoy it. I went to London. Jesse was raving about The Lion King. Uh, when we were there, I, I couldn't get into it. Even Book of Mormon, which was silly. I just, it just wasn't my thing. I'm not sure. It's just uh, I always just thought maybe I wasn't sophisticated enough to be to be rocking these to be rocking these musicals. But the truth is, I just don't think I'd seen the right musical, and Hamilton was the one. So it's a uh, how do you explain it? 
Alexander Hamilton was one of the founding fathers of the United States. And he was, he was just, uh, well, this, this play made him look like an absolute gangster. It was like modern rappers presenting in six songs, incredible songs, the story of Alexander Hamilton. And uh, I honestly, like I, I never cry. I never cry in documentaries. I never. Why do I keep calling it a documentary? It's not a documentary. It's very informative, but it's not a documentary. This one was crying like a little girl. Jesse kept looking at me. I kept trying to hide my eyes because it's embarrassing. I'm not 100% sure. I get really uncomfortable when you're when you're crying in a movie or when you're crying in anything for that matter. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. It's one of the most it's one of the most insane musicals you'll ever see it's better than lion king if you've seen lion king that's rubbish compared to it if you've seen book of mormon book of mormon doesn't even compare i didn't even really like it that much it's got such a you know when you see something and it's just got too much of a a build up around it and then you see it and you're like, i mean it was good but it, it wasn't exactly what i thought it was going to be i was expecting to be pissing myself like if my jocks were dry at the end of the performance i, I was going to consider the book of mormon a failure and they were relatively dry there's a couple of dribbles here and there and some very funny moments. But uh, it's when it's when something just gets you from left field, I think. It's when you're not expecting it to be so good. That's the that's the beauty. And I like those I like those uh, those black singers. Like there was a there's a couple of the black girls, there's a couple of the black guys, and they just I mean there's white guys that are good singers, obviously, but but black people are just just in general. I, I think black people are just better singers. That's my personal opinion. The music I like anyway. You know, I see a white guy come on screen with a microphone, I go, ah. Oh. But even Hamilton on this show. I heard Alex, um, or Andrew Claven. I don't know if you know him. Jesse keeps telling me that he thought that the guy who played Hamilton was the was the, the weakest role, was the weakest actor in the, uh, in the whole thing. He was probably my favorite. He was just an absolute gangster. Anyway, so I've been walking around this week feeling very sophisticated because it's not every day that you get the opportunity to... Like, you know when you enjoy something that's that makes you appear very cultured? Like just to be able to say, I, I, I heard, a, I watched a beautiful musical. It was one of the most, it was so touching. It was a touching musical. It was, and they go, what was touching about it? I go, the music. And they go, yeah, but what else was it? Like, what was the, what was the underlying message? I was like, oh, no, no, just how, like it was a very musical musical, even more musical than, than what a lot of other ones are. That's what made it so incredibly powerful. They said, Tossa, it's like when someone goes and watches a movie and they really like the movie, but have you noticed this? But they'll, they'll go and because they don't know any other way to explain how good the movie was, they'll comment on the cinematography. And cinematography, it's, it's a wanky enough word to make it sound like you might know what it is that you're talking about, but it's also, um, it's overused is the issue. If, I think if you want to give a detailed breakdown on any kind of film, you're gonna to have to learn words that, that's not just cinematography. Like the amount of times, I'll come out of a movie with Jesse and she'll go, how great was that cinematography? I go, sweetie, it was a Simpsons movie. It wasn't, it wasn't that good. And she's like, oh, I thought it was just mind blowing. The way they use that camera to create emotion, the mise-en-scene. Like I think mise-en-scene, that's one I, I learned in year 12. I think that's what they, it's, <clears throat> it's the things that they put on the scene to, to portray a particular emotion or to give you some idea of, of what's going on. I'm pretty sure, mind you, Year 12 Media wasn't a strong point of mine, so I might have told you the complete wrong thing. I'm not 100% sure, but mise-en-scene's a better one. Like, start, start throwing out words like mise-en-scene. 
Sure, if you, if you need to use cinematography just to get you warmed up, do it. But then mise-en-scene. Um, look, I'm gonna, they're, they're, the only, they're the only two the only two film terms I'm, I'm really confident on. But that's just one of my pet hates, just to leave a movie and... Movies like people's opinions, isn't it? I guess because we're all so unique, there's there's no one movie that just fits all. But but I get frustrated uh, when when people hate movies that I like. I remember what was the one? There was a there was a movie years ago by had Bradley Cooper in it, which is always a good place to start. And uh, he was an aspiring novelist. And I don't know what it was about this particular movie, but it just it just got me going. I was so pumped to watch it. I I couldn't. This is probably not setting a very strong foundation for my argument that you should watch Hamilton. So take this with a grain of salt. But my my recommendations in the past haven't been great recommendations. <laughs> I tend to I tend to get a little excited. I tend to come out hyping things up. <clears throat> they always say, hey, uh, you know, under promise and over deliver. But when it comes to movies, I the emotion gets the better of me. I'm going to be honest. I tend to overpromise, underdeliver. So, so this that's just based on reputation of sort of the last fifteen years. Maybe Hamilton's where it changes. Let me know. But, but yeah, I saw I saw this movie with Bradley Cooper wanting to be a novelist. I thought this is sick. This is gonna this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. And then uh, then I went to to work and recommended it to a friend. She went and watched it with her husband. Got back to work the next day and was like, "Toss that was." That was the shittest movie. That was the shittest movie I've, I've ever seen. I said, oh, surely there was at least one thing in it you liked. She's like, I didn't, no. The closing credits was my favorite part. I said, well, you've got to call it early. If you hate the movie, you don't need to wait till the closing credits to find it. That's just a waste of your evening, isn't it? You need to be spending a little bit more time... Uh, you know, how to figure out, how to figuring out how to use your time more wisely. Because if you're getting to the closing credits, if you're getting to the closing credits, and you're like, that was just the shittest movie of all time, you've, you've waited too long. I saw an Adam Sandler movie once. It was a cartoon one in, we're in South Australia. We went to, uh, went to Rundle Mall, we're 15 years old, and we, we went and had a look. We, we, it's called Eight Crazy Nights. If you haven't heard of it, don't watch it. Because that was one movie where, where even I was a little bit like, this is just, this is preposterous. This is a preposterous movie. And I was there as a 15-year-old immature kid going, this just has no storyline. There's no substance to it. There's no meaning to it. What are we doing here? Um, where was I going with that? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I was going with that. I mean, it's not, a, it's not an insult to Adam Sandler, I don't think. I'm not even sure whether he was responsible for... I'm not sure if he wrote it. It was very strange. It was like a cartoon Adam Sandler. I was like, well, Adam Sandler, he's been great for, for a lot of time now. Like, he's been a very good actor. If you're that good an actor, don't convert to, to cartoons of yourself. Just you do it. Like, if Beavis and Butthead were, were, you know, two great actors, then there's no reason for Beavis and Butthead to to become a cartoon. I'm not sure that's a strong point. I'm not 100% sure uh, where I was going with that. But anyway, I've got a lot to learn about Hollywood. Speaking of Hollywood, have you guys been paying attention to this Johnny Depp court case? I'm embarrassed about how much time I've spent watching it. It's just, it's it's very trendy, isn't it? Like you, <clears throat> you jump onto YouTube at the moment, and this is probably just my algorithm because I spent so much time watching it. He's a cool guy. I'm going to go get a bird tattooed on my hand. I don't even care. I'm not sure. Is it a phoenix? He's He's a cool guy. 
You can just tell everyone in the courtroom is in love with him. Everyone watching is in love with him. I'm in love with him. I'm going to be honest, I had some real inappropriate thoughts coming up about Johnny Depp in my mind the last couple of weeks, and I've been like, whew. I didn't know. I knew I loved Pirates of the Caribbean, but I didn't know I had, you know, a physical attraction to a man in a court case. Like, anyone with his hair tied back like that, that little cheeky mustache with a cheeky little laugh, you go, all right, this guy's on to say, what does he know? What does this guy know that I don't? Like, I, I looked at him, and before I'd even heard the court case, I was like, well, it's Johnny Depp. He's the Pirates of the Caribbean guy. He's, uh, no, he's he wins. He wins this court case. How do you? Because it'd be intimidating to be a lawyer for a bloke like that as well, because I feel like it'd be hard to come out swinging, because if you're in, in court trying to, to trying to prosecute the Pirates of the Caribbean what are they calling him? What's his actual name in the movie? Jack Sparrow. I get this is the problem with me. I get too caught up in the storyline, and, and then I see a person in real life, and, and I forget that it's not that real person. I see, I see Johnny Depp. I see John uh, Jack Sparrow. Like if I see Johnny Depp, that's just that's just all I see. Um. Look, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the purpose of of me telling you that particular. That particular story was. I've got my. In case you're looking, I've got a. I'm currently in a in a share. I'm in a trade. I've got the computers up behind me, and it's about to hit my stop point. If it hits a dollar fifty three, I have to get out. Lithium Energy. I shorted this stock. I shorted it because of the fact that I had news yesterday, and it hit a dollar fifty one. It was its all time high. And then right now it's at a dollar fifty-two. I said if it hits a dollar fifty-three, which is higher than yesterday's high, I'll exit this trade. And now, four minutes ago it was at a dollar forty-seven, and I was slightly in the profit. And now I'm now I'm just slightly in the red, but that's okay. So if I quickly jump up in a moment, it's because uh, because I don't want to lose too much money. Very addictive this day trading work. You can see how people fall into this idea of it's essentially it's glorified gambling. You can, you know, in gambling, how you'll see people, you'll see people who go out and they'll just put random amounts of money on random horses. They'll go out and be like, "Oh, Bart Simpson, I love that name. I'll, I'll put fifty bucks on that horse." You can approach trading like that. You can go into any stock and just go, "All right, I'm just going to put fifty dollars down on it." But just like in horse racing, you can go, "All right, well, let's have a look at some of the fundamentals of this horse over the last couple of months. He's won six races uh, over this distance. Uh, he performs really well in the red." Like, <clears throat> People are very good, uh, you know, if you put time and effort into trying to establish your understanding of, uh, you know, horse racing or football or, or whatever else it is. You can do it really well. I was sitting on a, a plane with a bloke once. I was sitting next to him. Actually, we are flying back from Sydney and uh, okay, mates. We, we got to the airport and he was visiting from Sydney and ended up driving down to Melbourne with him. He was, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy, but we were um we were on the plane. I said, "Oh, what do you do with yourself?" He goes, "Mate, I'm I'm trying to figure that out." And I said, "Oh, explain that to me. What do you mean you're trying to figure it out?" And he said, uh, "He goes, well, I'm I'm trying to figure it out because I've just been kicked off all the major betting apps in Australia." Uh, I said, "Oh, like why? What have you done?" He's like, "Because I'm a very I'm a very good better." I said, "Oh, that was the first time I I even knew that was a possibility. I didn't. I thought the way you bet was just like I did when I went to the horse races. You'd go, like I said before, you'd see a horse called." Uh, Rafael Nadal, you go, well, he's a good tennis player. That it, it probably correlates to a pretty good horse race over four kilometers. Um, and I would usually I would usually leave just bitterly disappointed. And some people, my uncle, my uncle was a wild man. He, he passed away a few years ago and he had cancer, but he uh, drugs was a big part of his life. He was a, he was a bit of a he was a bit of a role. He, he really enjoyed cocaine. Cocaine was a 
it was his special powder. And, uh, you know, he had a couple of hotel deals which went really well for him, and he profited big time. And and he, he went down to, I'm not 100% sure what race course it was. I think it was Flemington. And anyway, because he was betting with such a high amount of money, and he was he was off his head on, on drugs, to be fair, they created a tab for him, and... Uh, what was it? He was he was one hundred and six thousand dollars up for the day. He just kept. He, he said he felt like it was pretend money. He was just putting massive amounts on horses, and for whatever reason, they just kept winning. They just kept. Uh, they just kept getting across the line. He went back at the end of the day, and they said, "Oh, you know, we owe you one hundred and ten thousand. And oh, he went back about lunchtime, and that's how far up he was. So he said he just started putting on ridiculous trifectas, and he said he went back, and at the end of the day, he owed four grand on his tab. I that's not the kind of trading I like to do. I don't like to be that kind of trader. I lose $5 and I'll get a little bit shaky. Right now I'm $4 down and I go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I wish I was doing a little bit better than what I'm doing right now, but come on, come on, lithium. Make me believe I can do this. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you hear about people like that who, who are just gun traders or, or gun betters. Because you can do it well, but it just it takes time and, and effort and, and patience. and Anyway. Got to, you've got to admire the commitment. I think that is the best thing about comedians. There's, just a, there's a certain level of hustle that they have. They just go out, they get it done, they gig a lot. Uh, I mean, it's very easy to become OCD. I think OCD runs deep in the in the comedy world. I guess, I guess if you want to be good at it, though, you have to be a little OCD. You can't just go out once a year and go, okay, hopefully I'm getting better, because you're not. You're not going to get that much better like that. I don't think. Anyway, there's a girl. There's a girl I do comedy with. She's got two kids. She's got a six-month-old, and uh, I think she's got a three-month, uh, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. This is the kind of hustle I like. She'll go out to a gig with her six-month-old. She'll go there with her sister and her mum. The sister will babysit while she's up on stage, just getting her jokes done. I just, I've got so much respect for people like that because it's easy. Don't you reckon it's easy just to make excuses about why you can't do something? It's so easy just to to. I don't know. I find it easier sometimes just to come up with a reason why something's not possible. I don't know if that's true. I don't I don't really necessarily personally do that, I don't think, but I, I think I can understand how a lot of people do that. I'm trying to focus consciously on not doing that, maybe. And uh, and then you have people like this who she's like, oh, well, I want to get good at comedy, so I'll take my little kid out. I reckon kids like that are the best kids as well. Like kids who have a bit of a wild story. Imagine when you're 25, you sit at the table with your mum, who hopefully she's like a, a really well-established, great comedian by then. And you go, uh, you know, that's how good I was as a kid. Or as a comedian, that's how committed I was that you came to the gigs with me and uh, our powers combined. Look where we made it to. I'm not sure. It also it, it could go the other way as well, couldn't it? You don't you can't say for certain that's going to work out well. Maybe just being over ooh, maybe just being overexposed to the uh, to the pub scene at that young age is is not good for anyone. Hmm. Anyway, I've just been stopped out. I have to get out of that stock because it just hit dollar fifty three. I'm very upset about it. I've just clicked stop out. There's a five dollar loss for the day, which is that's disappointing, isn't it? You don't want to lose five dollars. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Some people, they laugh because they're like, oh, isn't it funny how Tice pretends to be upset about losing $5? I'm very disappointed with that. Anyway, I had no good reason to be in it. And that's that's the punishment you get. So ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, I've i well and truly spoken enough to you today. I hope you have a great rest of your week. It's uh, What is it today? Tuesday, 
Uh, I'll see you all here again next week. Enjoy your week. God bless. Much love. And uh, yeah, till next week. Mwah.